welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. <gasps> Julia! Hi! Back, back in the New York groove. That's the only part of the song I know. Yeah, Thank you, Ace Freely. Yeah, too. <laughs> um, yeah. We're so back. We, so if you've been listening to us lately, you'll realize that we recorded a lot of episodes um, in, in the springtime. Mm-hmm. We had to take take a little bit of time off this summer um, for various reasons. Sure. You know, I had to watch a lot of Cougar Town. Yes, that, um, that was important. What else happened this summer? I, be- I became a person that likes caramel and cheddar popcorn mixed. What? I didn't know that I was this one of those people. Fir- yeah. This is the first time hearing yeah. this. What? Yeah, there was that. Who are you? I know, I know. Oh, there's another human in my house oh, now. right, she's, yes. Um, you had she's a- very cute. Yes. Uh, but requires a lot of attention. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, for those of you who don't know, Julia had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> and we, and you didn't miss it. Like, we no, didn't talk about it on the at podcast all. at all. So it's not... Like, you're like, oh, no, they said secret clues. No. <laughs> and we had to piece it together. And uh, no. No. It was not mentioned. But no. now we have a new yes. Little Miss Little Miss information. Yep. Her name she's, is Eleanor. She's very cute. She's very cute. She's asleep right now, which is why we're able to record this. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be a lot of um, maneuvering around uh, her particular schedule. Uh-huh. And Steve has offered to come over to be Unky Steve. Perfect. And hold her and warm her up and put her to sleep <laughs> while while we do the business of this, our business. So, uh, yeah, many congratulations to Julia. And uh, I'm very excited to be um, an aunt, although I've insisted that my name is just Lauren. <laughs> like, Unky Steve and Lauren are, <laughs> are going to be major influences this, in this her life. This baby has three aunts. Lauren. Yeah. So I'm just, I call just Lauren. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's not going to be confusing at all. <laughs> no, she can come up with a nickname for me. I don't care. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. So we're, so we're recording again. We're finally back together. It's great. Um, it feels good. I feel good. It was nice to do research again. Oh, yeah. For some strange reason. It was kind of like, oh, this feels nice. After, um, eight weeks of just holding a baby yeah i um my hands forgot how to type so i actually <laughs> did struggle while making really? my notes for this episode oh, wow. yeah well was, well i'm out of practice <laughs> well hopefully you know it'll feel like riding a bike mm-hmm. yeah exactly well it, i mean we might as well get to it yeah sure let's just jump right in it's your episode exactly <laughs> so I've been reading a lot of, a lot of like this little trailblazer and like <laughs> you, you can be anything uh-huh. books to my mm-hmm. eight week old child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that I didn't actually know a lot about um, feminist literature oh, prior oh. to um, reading some of these books to her uh, that I figured I should know. And do they, they make reference to it in these do. children's books? Yeah, you wow. know, oh, little Betty Frieden. She, oh. did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very cute little cartoon i love it um yeah so i realized that this would be a great topic for us to cover on Mm -hmm. this podcast because uh no shade at all to any of the other trivia podcasts but i don't think any of them are gonna cover this oh you don't think our triviality brothers did a whole episode on brothers hi brothers i don't (laughs) think our brothers are gonna do a a special feminist themed episode episode. but you know they could surprise us (laughs) Yeah, that's true. They've surprised us in the past that they were going to do a whole episode on seminal feminist texts, which actually, now that I think about it, I shouldn't use the word seminal. It goes against everything yes. about ov- feminists. Ov- Ovipositor? Nope. Ov- <laughs> you know how when Legally Blonde, when they're like, I I got the school to change the name Semester to Ovester. That's what I think of. Whatever. Yeah, no, that's very good. Yeah, we'll we'll come up with it. We'll figure it out. Instead of seminal, it'll be... Ovamol? Ovamol? We'll workshop it. It's like grabbing a stroke. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Uh, yeah. So this week from me, you're getting the problem that has no name. Feminist literature. All right. If we were going to cover just like feminism oh, sure. in general, we would be here forever. And Absolutely. I'm sure there's already a podcast that 
that covers that for oh, folks. I'm sure. So Absolutely. we're not trying to, you know, reinvent the wheel here. No. Uh, quick definition. Feminism is a range of social movements, political movements, and ideologies that aim to define, establish, and achieve the political, economic, personal, and social equality of the sexes. Uh, So feminism incorporates the position that societies prioritize the male point of view and that women are treated unjustly within those societies. Hmm. Um, Charles Fourier, who is a utopian socialist and French philosopher, um, he's the one that's credited with having coined the word feminism in uh, 1837. So modern Western feminist history is conventionally split into three time periods or waves. So mm-hmm. you'll typically hear them referred to as that. Um, each of them has slightly different aims based on the prior progress that was made during the wave before. Mm-hmm. First wave feminism is the 19th and early 20th centuries that was focused on overturning legal inequalities, particularly addressing issues of women's suffrage. Second wave feminism is the 1960s to 1980s. Uh, That broadened the debate to include cultural inequalities, gender norms, and the role of women in society. And then third wave feminism, the 1990s to the 2000s, um, that refers to the diverse strains of feminist activity. So third wavers see this as a continuation of the second wave and also as a response to the perceived failures of the wave Mm. before it. Mm -hmm. So... I guess we're right outside the third wave right now. Yeah, I think we're moving into the fourth wave. Interesting. Which can't be defined until after it's passed. Exactly. Exactly. Look at you. Uh, Hey, I know my history, man. You know what I'm talking about? Or woman. Oh, watch out. I should say, I want to point out, as part of that definition, Mm -hmm. feminism is not women are better than men. No. Absolutely not. And it still maintains to this day. It's about equality. Exactly. So. Exactly. That's all I wanted to point out for all of our listeners. Great segue, Lauren. Thank you. So feminist literature, it can be fiction or nonfiction or drama or poetry that supports the feminist goals of establishing, defining, and defending equal civil, political, economic, and social rights for women. Mm Mm-hmm. So, we are going to cover 10 important feminist pieces of literature. I'm very excited about That everyone this. should know. Great. And we'll go in chronological order. Of course. Because you know me. Mm-hmm. So, the first we're going to talk about is a vindication of the rights of women with strictures on political and moral subjects by Mary Wollstonecraft from 1792. So this is one of the earliest works of feminist philosophy. It was published in the United Kingdom. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft responded to 18th century educational and political theorists who believed that women should not receive a rational education. Um, It was believed at the time that women were too susceptible to sensibility and too fragile to be able to think clearly. So you Mm. were not able to be... um, the recipient of a rational education. Sure, 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 sure. So Wollstonecraft (laughs) argued that women's education should match their position in society and that they are essential to the nation because they raise its children and could act as respected companions to their husbands then. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So Wollstonecraft maintained that women are human beings deserving of the same fundamental rights as men and that treating them as ornaments or property for men undermines the moral foundations of society. Which... How about that? You think, <laughs> you'd think that people, any rational person would be like, yeah, that makes sense. Treat women as human beings? Sure. But the fact that there was such vitriol yes. against this concept is like mind yes. blowing to me. But anyway. this was 1792 that was like, yeah, they put it into writing and people were like, what uh. the? So her work had significant impact on advocates for women's rights in the 19th century, particularly the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention. Yeah, hell yeah. um, That produced the Declaration of Sentiments, which laid out the aims of the suffragette movement in the United States. Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, her name might be familiar. She is the mother of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, and she actually died 11 days after giving birth to Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. So Mary Wollstonecraft was like, she was this great feminist philosopher, great writer. Her husband was super supportive. That's she, nice. And, and then, then she died, died in childbirth. Which well, killed a lot of women. Yeah. Septicemia, man. Yeah. Because men who were only allowed to be doctors 
uh, refuse to treat women because of all of their naughty bits. Also, nobody washed their hands. Oh, yeah. Nobody. Oh, we should really point out. Yes, no one washed their hands. That probably caused a lot of issues, too. (laughs) (laughs) So we're jumping ahead into the 20th century. Second, we're going to talk about A Room of One's Own by Mm. Virginia Woolf. It was published in 1929. So that's an extended essay that was first published in September 1929. It's based on two lectures that Virginia Woolf delivered in October 1928 at Newnham College and Girton College, which are the women's colleges at the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom. So the title of the essay, A Room of One's Own, comes from Woolf's conception that, quote, a woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. So Wolf's father believed that only the boys of their family should be sent to school. And in delivering the lectures that she outlined in this essay, Wolf spoke to women who had the opportunity to learn in a formal setting there at the college. Mm-hmm. Like, look how lucky you are. Yeah. Um, she also talks to her audience to have them understand the importance of their education and warning them of the precariousness of their position in society. Mm. Um there's one famous section of this essay where she invents a fictional character named Judith Shakespeare, who would have been the sister of William Shakespeare in this essay, Mm -hmm. um, to illustrate that a woman with Shakespeare's gifts would have been denied the opportunity to actually develop them. Mm. So if you hear the term, if you, you know, if you hear, um, a reference to Judith Shakespeare, they're talking about a room of one's own. I see. Okay. Um, also, Virginia Woolf was a member of the Bloomsbury Group. That's another like big writing club. So when we talk about like Dorothy Parker with her mm. Algonquin Roundtable, we talk about Virginia Woolf with her Bloomsbury Group. Um, and Woolf is also best known for her novels, Mrs. Dalloway and To the Lighthouse. Nice. So that's what you sh- else you should know her mm-hmm. for. 1949, The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. Mm-hmm. And this is... Um, was published originally in French, Le Deuxième Sex. It is often regarded... <laughs> Somehow it's dirtier in French. <laughs> Le Deuxième Sex <laughs> is often regarded as a major work of feminist philosophy, and it's the starting point of second wave feminism. Mm. So um, she published this work in two volumes. Uh, the first was called Facts and Myths, and the second was Lived Experience, or in French, Les Fêtes et les Mythes, or, and also L'Experience Vessue. And in the first volume, she asks the reader, what Mm -hmm. is woman? Arguing that man is considered the default and woman is considered the other. So that woman is the second class there. I see. Yeah. So her work also contains the famous line, quote, one is not born a woman, but becomes one. Mm -hmm. And you should also know that Simone de Beauvoir was the lifelong partner of Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist. So they're often really linked. So again, Mm -hmm. you're... Your key phrases here are, you know, partner of Sartre. Uh, it's in French. What is woman? Mm-hmm. Le deuxième sex. <laughs> Can you imagine how? And believe, and they're both incredible writers who have done a lot of work for to to like further our culture, just you know, in, in general, worldwide. But can you imagine how? Just so boring <laughs> they must have been as a couple like if you go out to dinner with them you're like oh god are we can we just talk about something fun and not and not like existentialism uh, or like this chicken. <laughs> why did it did it have a name <laughs> what should we call it is it just a chicken it's like please just guys can we just go we've been here for hours <laughs> But no, they've done great work, but they were probably infuriating. <clears throat> I'm just saying. <laughs> Back to America. Sure. We have The Feminine Mystique by mm. Betty Friedan, published in 1963. So The Feminine Mystique is widely credited with sparking the beginning of second wave feminism in the United States. Mm. Um, in 1957, Friedan was asked to conduct a survey of her former Smith College classmates for their 15th anniversary reunion. And the results um, were that she found that many of them were unhappy with mm. their lives as housewives. And this prompted her to conduct interviews with other suburban housewives and do her own research on advertising, media, and psychology. So this book begins with an introduction describing what Frieden called, 
quote, the problem that has no name, Mm. the widespread unhappiness of women in the 1950s and early 1960s. So Frieden challenged the widely shared belief that fulfillment as a woman had only one definition for American women after 1949 as the, quote, housewife mother. Mm. And the phrase feminine mystique was created by Frieden to show the assumptions that women would be fulfilled from their housework, marriage, sexual lives, and children. And it was said that women who were actually feminine should not have wanted to work or get an education or have any political opinions. So Frieden wanted to prove that women were unsatisfied but could not voice their feelings. And Mm. she advocated for women to seek education and work outside their home. Uh, Frieden was also one of the founders of the National Organization for Women, also Mm -hmm. called NOW. Yes, NOW. When do we want equality? Now. Exactly. Great. A few years later, we get The Female Eunuch by Mm. Germaine Greer. It was published in 1970. So Greer's thesis is that the traditional suburban consumerist nuclear family represses women sexually and that this devitalizes them and renders them as eunuchs. Um, She's also from Australia. That seems to be the the clue word that you get when it's a Germaine Greer question. Is that this Australian feminist. Huh. So in sections titled Body, Soul, Love, and Hate, uh, Greer examines historical definitions of women's perception of self and uses a premise of imposed limitations to critique modern consumer societies, as well as female normality and masculine shaping of stereotypes, quoting, the world has lost its soul and I my sex. Mm. Greer argued that men hate women, uh, though the latter do not realize this and are taught to hate themselves. And change had to come about um, by the way of revolution, not evolution, mm. and that women should get to know and come to accept their own bodies. That's great. I love that. It it got a little controversial. Some of some of her talking about getting to know your bodies was a little a little woohoo for for some people at sure. the time. Yeah, but I mean, this was what you said, nineteen seventy. Nineteen seventy. Yeah, still, you know, people are starting to. I mean, it wasn't totally the free love movement. It's right. not like everyone got on board. Yeah. You know, you know, Jermaine Greer, the female eunuch. Okay, uh, 1981, we have Ain't I a Woman? Black Women and Feminism by Bell Hooks. Mm -hmm. So um, she was born Gloria Jean Watkins, but is better known by her pen name, Bell Hooks, which is all lowercase. Um, She's an American author, professor, feminist, and social activist. The name Bell Hooks is borrowed from her maternal great-grandmother, who was Bell Blair Hooks. So this book, Ain't I a Woman, uh, is titled after Sojourner Truth's famous Ain't I a Woman speech that Mm -hmm. was at the Seneca Falls Convention. Hooks examines the effect of racism and sexism on black women, the civil rights movement, and feminist movements from suffrage up through the 1970s. She argued that the convergence of sexism and racism during slavery contributed to black women having the lowest status and worst conditions of any group in American society. Mm -hmm. So for example, white female abolitionists and suffragists were often more comfortable being around black male abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, while segregationists and stereotypes of the black female immorality caused protests whenever black women spoke. Interesting. Yes. Hmm. So Hooks also said that the feminist movement was a largely white middle and upper class affair, and it did not articulate the needs of poor and non-white women reinforcing sexism, racism, and classism. Mm -hmm. Uh, She suggested that this explains the low numbers of black women who participated in the feminist movement in the 19th And since its publication, Ain't I a Woman has been critically acclaimed as groundbreaking in the study of feminist theory for discussing the correlation between the history of oppression that black women have faced in the United States and its lingering effects in modern black society. Mm Mm-hmm. Bell Hooks is frequently cited as having provided the best solution to the difficulty of defining something as diverse as feminism, Mm. addressing the problem that if feminism can mean everything, then it means nothing. Mm -hmm. So her response to what is feminism is, quote, feminism is a movement to end sexism, sexist exploitation and oppression. Great. That's the definition. I love it. Great. And I would say this is like the beginning of, say, intersectional feminism, Mm. right? Like early 80s. This is when we're getting into like not everybody's experience as a woman is the same. Mm -hmm. uh, And to assume that everyone has the same experience as like a white upper middle class woman means that you are excluding a lot of women who have different 
experiences and may have other needs on their way toward equality. Look Did at you, you just hear me oh say that? God. Oh my God. Who She's available I? for lectures. I folks. can talk right off the cuff. I don't even have it written down in front of me. Anyway, <laughs> please continue, Julia. Of course. That, that was perfect. Um, one that you might be interested in, hmm. The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf oh, from yeah. 1990. So the basic premise is that as the social power and prominence of women have increased, the pressure they feel to adhere to unrealistic social standards of physical beauty has also grown stronger because of commercial influence mm-hmm. on the mass media. So this pressure leads to unhealthy behaviors by women and a preoccupation with appearance in both sexes. And Wolf argues that societal constructs of beauty punish women who cannot attain them. Yes. It's like an infuriating, like, yeah commercials are bad to us yeah everything's bad to us it's amazing (laughs) and now it's being couched in like you go girl you know like all bodies are beautiful see i have cellulite i'm a whole size six you know like they make spanks and yeah spandex and spanks and you know we're pulling up our imaginary spanks (laughs) right now pulling them up (laughs) Although if we were actually, you'd hear a lot more grunting and groaning and pain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway. A year later, we get Backlash, the Undeclared War Against American Women by Susan Faludi in 1991. So she argued that the 1980s actually saw a backlash against feminism, especially due to the spread of negative stereotypes against career-minded women. Mm. Faludi was inspired to write Backlash after investigating the statistics behind a 1986 Newsweek cover story that reported on a study detailing the bleak marital prospects for single educated career women. But this study used faulty statistics. So it was just like blew up this Mm. like stereotype that was going around that was actually not real at all. And kind of at the risk of being very 2020, it was fake news. Yeah. Um, So Faludi began to examine other sensationalized stories about women that were being promoted by the media. And the main premise of this book is that there are two overarching media messages regarding feminism's gains for women since the 1980s. So first, the feminist fight for equality has largely been won. And now that women have the equality, they have never been so miserable obviously yeah and two by reporting statistically unsupported ideas of how feminism has negatively affected women the media has helped to create a backlash that encourages women to reject the gains and the struggle for real equality so reports of things like the man shortage and the infertility epidemic and female burnout are not the actual conditions of women's lives but are false images portrayed by the media popular culture and advertising which the more I read, the more I'm like, <laughs> media and advertising yeah. are, are terrible. Yeah, it's the idea of like, a girl can have it all when it's like, no, you can't. And the fact that women are being told like, under the guise of feminism, mm-hmm. like, you could have it all when in fact, you can't and neither can a man, yeah. you know, like it's just... You're getting judged by everybody, yeah. left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you opted to follow your career and you in the 1980s you found yourself in your 40s without a man oh no yeah how, God ter- forbid. how terrible mm-hmm. but if you decided to go another route and you know accept this traditional uh nuclear family type thing then you were like going against everything that your foremothers had fought for <laughs> exactly you know yeah you can't win no there's no winning no yeah so that's a Backlash, The Undeclared War Against American Women by Mm. Susan Faludi. And she also won like Pulitzer Prize for some other reporting that she did. But she's she's a cool journalist. Cool. All right. One that I'm sure we all heard of when we were in our liberal arts colleges. Mm. The Vagina Monologues by Eve Ensler um, was written in 1996. So. If, you ha- if you're unfamiliar, it's an episodic play that was written by Ensler, which developed and premiered off-off-Broadway, and then it was off-Broadway, and then it, you know, 
went everywhere in 1996. So the play explores both consensual and non-consensual sexual experiences, body image, reproduction, menstruation, sex work, and a variety of other topics through the eyes of women with various ages, races, sexualities, and other differences. Uh, So this play has been staged internationally. Uh, There was a television version featuring Ensler that was produced by HBO. And in 1998, Ensler and others, um, including uh, a producer of her West Side Theater production, they launched V-Day, which is a global nonprofit movement that has raised more than $100 million for groups working to end violence against women and girls anti-violence through benefits of the vagina monologues. Uh, The V in V-Day stands for Victory, Valentine, and Vagina. Of course. Yeah. When I was in college, uh, Dickinson Community Theater, which was our rival theater group, (laughs) I was in- Did you guys like- Yeah. We had like a whole Jets and Sharks thing. Don't even worry about it. Um, But we were in Hinman College Community Theater and they did Dickinson College Community Theater. We had like a friendly rivalry going on. Um, but they always got vaginal monologues. Mm-hmm. They like that. They had laid claim to that because mm-hmm. in the early two thousands, like every college was putting it on. Yes, at Valentine's Day, and then they would raise money, you know, mm-hmm. sell tickets and raise money for this V Day exactly. nonprofit. Yeah. So I've seen the vagina monologues easily too many times. Six times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everybody should see. It. Everybody should see it once. Absolutely. It's it. It holds up. There are some like there are some parts that you're like okay, but. It's very theater. You know, it's it's yeah. a theater experience. So you're going to get like the typical like theatrical monologue kind of quality to it. But it, it has a great message and it does give like a wide variety of experiences mm-hmm. across time and space and all that fun stuff. So, yes, I would highly recommend it. I don't need to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got the message yeah. of it. Yeah. But, you know. And then, actually, I only have one more I wanted to talk about. Wow. Yeah. We've breezed right through this. Blowing through. Um, This is called We Should All Be Feminist, Mm -hmm. and it's by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She is Nigerian, Mm -hmm. and I had to listen to several times how to pronounce her name, but I think I did it right. I think you did a good job. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. 2014, We Should All Be Feminists. So this is a book-length essay about the definition of feminism for the 21st century. So it was adapted from Adichie's 2012 TEDx talk of the same name. Um, She first delivered it at at TEDx Houston in London. And the talk has been viewed online more than 6 million times. Mm -hmm. So... While feminism advocates for equity and equality between men and women in all aspects of life, the fiercest opposers of women's liberation believe that feminism is a social movement that focuses on reversing gender roles and making men inferior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Empowering women is not equivalent to taking away opportunities from men. So teaching the community to have equal respect for women creates a successful environment and encouraging people to become feminists shapes their minds away from cultural and social constructs that limit the understanding of gender on sexuality and the roles that allow men and women to become who they want to be without restrictions. Yeah, because equality is not a pie. If someone else takes a big piece, it doesn't mean that's less pie for you. It is infinite pie. Everyone gets pie. Everyone gets the same amount of pie and it's enough. (laughs) That's what equality is. (laughs) Infinite pie. Infinite pie, everybody. Um, The other thing you should know about this is part of her speech is featured in Beyonce's 2013 song, Asterisk, 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 Flawless. Yes, it's so good. And her voice uh, is so um, rich. Her Mm -hmm. her beautiful, yes, lyrical Mm -hmm. Nigerian accent. She's just uh, a wonderful speaker. She has a lot of power. And uh, the, I think Beyonce samples like a significant portion yeah. of it. I think it's like a full like yeah. She gets like a writing something. credit like yeah. on the song. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that was, was great. That was ten works of feminist literature uh, that you all should know. And you know, if you're listening to this podcast, I feel like you wanted to. You wanted to. You know. wanted to know this. I'm, we're telling you, you wanted to know this. And guess what? Now you know. So congratulations. <laughs> so f- that was Feminism, the Problem Without a Name. Yes. Uh, our quiz tonight is called Some Problems That Do Have Names. Oh, okay. A quiz on famous mathematical or philosophical problems or theorems. I know. I know. You you, you got every question right last, qu- last quiz. <laughs> it feels so long ago. 
<laughs> it's very funny. Uh, my favorite part is when, you <laughs> like the hyperventilating into the mic. I got so many. Can I tell you? We got so many tweets from people who were so kind. Guys, thank you so much. Everyone was like, "Congratulations, Lord! We're so proud of you." I was like, thanks, guys. You're so nice. Now, oh, <laughs> Engineer Josh, like, you didn't know that he had to cut a lot of thinking out of that. Oh, my God. Yeah, I did. I was, it was too long. Shut up. Yeah, it was a lot Everybody of me. Just shut up. It was a lot of me screaming and breathing into the microphone. Yeah. I bet he had to cut a lot of that out. Because I was like, oh, I really got that really quickly when I was listening to it again, but I did not. It did take me a very long time. <laughs> Anyway, yes, please hit me with so, this terrible yeah, quiz that this, I'm going to get very bad this, at. This, I, I have a lot of faith in you. Oh, okay. Better so you than me, be I guess. Scared. Don't be okay. scared. All even right. though this is a quiz on famous mathematical or philosophical problems or theorems. Question one. A certain ethics thought experiment, first proposed by Philippe Foot, forces the subject to decide whether they ought to sacrifice one person to save a larger number of people, usually five workers on a set of tracks. By what two-word term is this scenario best known? Question two. The Seven Bridges of Konigsberg is an abstract mathematical problem that proposed a walk through the city of Konigsberg, Prussia, that would cross each of the city's seven bridges once and only once. It was proven by which prolific Swiss mathematician, with two numbers named after him, to have no solution? Question three. Hint, this one came up at Geek Bowl 2018. In mathematics, a certain theorem states that, given any separation of a plane into contiguous regions, producing a map, no more than how many colors are required to color the regions of the map so that no two adjacent regions have the same color. Question four. Andy Dufresne might agree. A standard example in game theory called what shows why two individuals might not cooperate even if it appears that it is in their best interests to do so. Question five. In 2000, the Clay Mathematics Institute stated seven unsolved math problems for which they have offered $1 million to anyone who discovers a solution. What is the collective name of these unsolved problems? Question six. First formulated in 1930 and still peddled today as a benchmark for optimization methods, a popular computational math problem asks, given a set of cities and distance between every pair of cities, what is the shortest possible route that visits every city exactly once and returns to the starting point? Multiple choice. Is this scenario popularly called a. The traveling salesman problem. B. The American Airlines problem. C. The pub crawl problem. Or D. The Ringling Brothers problem. Question 7. Do not put Descartes before de Horse. Which French mathematician's last theorem was created in 1637 and finally proved in 1995? Question 8. The famous Monty Hall problem is a scenario in which you are on a game show with the option of choosing one of three doors in order to win a car, and given the chance to change your first choice, should you? From what long-running game show does this problem derive? Question 9. This might prove why Family Guy is still making new episodes. A certain mathematical theorem states that a certain living thing hitting keys at random on a typewriter keyboard for an infinite amount of time will almost surely type any given text, such as the complete works of William Shakespeare. What organism fills in this definition, giving the theorem its name? And finally, question 10. Name the 2014 song title from these lyrics. Now we've got problems, and I don't think we can solve them. You made a really deep cut. I'll give you about a minute to think, and we'll be back with your answers.
couple of these hey hey i know not all of them but i'm feeling pretty good i'm feeling all right i'm not gonna look like a total idiot (laughs) so this is no speeches quiz (laughs) yeah or world religion yeah that (laughs) i apologize for that one all right question one (laughs) a certain ethics thought experiment first proposed by philippa foot forces the subject to decide whether they ought to sacrifice one person to save a larger number of people usually five workers on a set of tracks by what two-word term is this scenario best known is this the trolley problem? It is the trolley problem. I know this from the good place. Yes. So if you're not familiar with it now, um, you're riding a trolley that's barreling toward five people on the tracks and doing nothing will result in the deaths of all five people. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, you could pull a lever diverting the vehicle to another set of tracks, which will kill one person instead of five. So the experiment examines two important ethical theories. So there's utilitarianism that's taking the action that results in the greatest amount of good for the largest number of people Mm -hmm. or deontology which is trying to do as much good as possible though the actions you take to get there matter more than the actual results so yes there are there's a really great episode of the good place where he he, they physically act out this problem yeah it's very good yeah question two the seven bridges of konigsberg is an abstract mathematical problem that proposed a walk through the city of konigsberg prussia that would cross each of the city's seven bridges once and only once it was proven by which prolific swiss mathematician with two numbers named after him to have no solution two numbers named after him can i <clears throat> this will be not this will not be the first time or the last time i say this i do not know enough mathematicians off the top of my head um so you said Swiss, so he probably has a French name. Two numbers. Is he Louis Prime? Ooh, that's a good one. Is that, is that good? That's good? No, that's not it, is it? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no. <laughs> no. Uh, what's another? Francois Rationale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Uh, my guess looks going to be Louis Prime. Okay. Or Prime. <laughs> That's a great guess. Uh, this guy, you should you should know him. His name is Leonard Euler. E U L E R. Oh, I didn't know that's Euler. how that was pronounced. Yes. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So Euler is the only mathematician to have two numbers named after him. The important Euler's number in calculus, which is E, lowercase E. Sure. It's yeah. approximately equal to two point seven one eight two eight. Oh I could keep going, but I don't want to embarrass anybody, <laughs> especially myself. Um, also, the Euler Mascheroni constant, which is gamma, so that looks like looks like kind of like a lowercase y. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's yeah, a little gamma. curly. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sometimes referred to just as Euler's constant, and that is approximately equal to zero point five seven seven two one. Um, so anyway, Swiss mathematician is supposed to like. You're supposed to remember this guy. Okay. Because he's so, an important guy. Euler. All right. Um, so this math problem, I actually first came across it like when I was working on, um, in a past life when I worked on standardized assessment tests. There, oh, right. This was like a, a problem they drew a picture of to show you that this was an impossible problem. Mm-hmm. So the city of Konigsberg in Prussia, it's now uh, Kaliningrad, Russia. Um, it was set on both sides of the Pregel River, and it included two large islands that were connected to each other or to the two mainland portions of the city by seven bridges. Mm-hmm. So you can, so it, you know, do, did a little um, illustration of the peninsula and the, the islands and showed you the bridges, and you were supposed to say see how you couldn't just cross each bridge once and only once and still end up yeah back where you were supposed to be so um so it was proposed and this 
problem has a negative resolution. That's what they call when they when they said it has no no solution. It's a negative, negative resolution. resolution. Hmm. And it actually laid the foundations of graph theory. So it was kind of like a big thing. So it is a problem that um, has come up on Learned League before. Oh, okay. So, you know, so the Seven Bridges of Konigsberg, proven by Leonard Euler. All right. Great Good to know. Question three. Hint. This one came up at Geek Bowl in 2018. In mathematics, a certain theorem states that, given any separation of a plane into contiguous regions producing a map, no more than how many colors are required to color the regions of the map so that no two adjacent regions have the same color? I, I have a distinct memory of Steve, like, coloring in different portions of, a, like, a fake map that he mm-hmm. drew to, like, get a sense of it. I think... If I remember correctly, the answer is four. The answer is four. This is called the four-color theorem. Oh, perfect. And it was also the first major theorem to be proved using a computer. Oh, hey, that's interesting. It's interesting. (laughs) My math score on Learn It League is abysmal, by the way. Oh, mine too. Oh, my God. This is is another reason why I wanted to do this. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Question four. Andy Dufresne might agree. A standard example in game theory called what shows why two individuals might not cooperate even if it appears that it is in their best interests to do so. Is it like the Shawshank theory or the prisoner dilemma? Prisoner's dilemma? Prisoner. Prisoner's dilemma! <laughs> Yay! Oh, no. I, I didn't you. know. I guess that. Because he's a prisoner. Yeah. <laughs> So in one version of the of the dilemma, uh, two members of a criminal gang are arrested and imprisoned. Each prisoner is in solitary confinement with no way to communicate with the other. So the prosecutors lack sufficient evidence to convict the pair on the principal charge, but they have enough to convict both on a lesser charge. Mm. So simultaneously, the prosecutors would offer each prisoner a bargain. So they're given the opportunity either to betray the other by testifying that the other committed the crime or they could cooperate with the other by remaining silent. And Mm -hmm. it is implied that the prisoners will have no opportunity to reward or punish their partner other than the prison sentences they get, and that their decision would not affect the reputation in the future. But because betraying a partner offers a greater reward than cooperating with them, all purely rational, self-interested prisoners will betray the other. Of course. Meaning the only possible outcome for two purely rational prisoners is for them to betray each other. Exactly. The Prisoner's Dilemma. And honestly, I watch enough uh, investigation discovery to know that that happens more All often the time. than not. Yep. All the time. All the time. Question five. In 2000, the Clay Mathematics Institute stated seven unsolved math problems for which they have offered $1 million to anyone who discovers a solution. What is the collective name of these unsolved problems? Um... I feel like I've come across this answer before in the past. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is it like the meaning of life questions or like the Duke University meaning of life math? Why did I think of Duke University? <laughs> I clearly don't know anything. What? <laughs> Let's just count this one. Lauren didn't get it. <laughs> All right. The answer is the Millennium Prize problems. Oh. So there are there were seven of them. Okay. Now there's only six that are unsolved. Okay. So only one has been only solved one in has 20 been years. Solved. Yeah. The, to date, the only Millennium Prize problem to have been solved is the Poincaré conjecture, which was solved in 2003 by the Russian mathematician Grigory Perelman, and he declined the prize money. What? Why would you do you that? You get $1 million if you solve this math problem. Yeah. I feel like this might have come up when we had, uh, when Eric was on during our math episode, oh, and we were like, right. Lord, all we have to do is solve one of these problems. <laughs> that does sound familiar. That does sound familiar. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, as long as we don't have to prove how we got there. <laughs> Be like, what if the answer is just like two, two. and a half? Yeah. <laughs> so just so you know, the names of the other problems that Mm -hmm. have not yet to be solved. Uh, The Birch and Swinnerton-Dyer conjecture, the Hodge conjecture, the Navier-Strokes existence and smoothness, P versus NP problem, uh, the Ryman hypothesis, and the Yang-Mills existence and mass gap. 
These sound so fake. take a stab. <laughs> take a stab, everybody. If yeah. you feel like it. Yep the the Millennium Prize problem. Apparently, there's still a million dollars in there's it for you. So st- still six million dollars. Oh yeah. Out there for so if you, you solve more than one, you get more money. Yes, it's a million dollars per puzzle. I can't believe that guy turned it down. How dumb are you? Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> for math or whatever. All right. Question six. First formulated in 1930 and still peddled today as a benchmark for optimization methods, a popular computational math problem asks, given a set of cities and distance between every pair of cities, what is the shortest possible route that visits every city exactly once and returns to the starting point? Multiple choice. Is this scenario popularly called A, the traveling salesman problem, B, the American Airlines problem, C, the pub crawl problem, or D, the Ringling Brothers problem? Considering that it's 1930, I'm going to say, A, the traveling salesman problem. The traveling salesman problem. You are correct. Great job. Thanks. All right. Question seven. Do not put Descartes before de horse. Which French mathematician's last theorem was created in 1637 and finally proved in 1995? Did you say French mathematician? Yes. Who's not Descartes? Not Descartes. Oh, damn. Uh, Again, I really don't know a lot of mathematicians. French names. What about... um, uh, What about Camus? He's a philosopher. He's not a mathematician, but it's the only French person. It was created in 1637. Oh, no, forget it. He wrote Lestrange. Um... Louis Prime. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. Potato O'Patrickson. Um, this guy's name is Pierre de Fermat. Oh, I don't know who that is. Fermat. Fermat's last theorem in number theory is very important. Mm. It states that no three positive integers, A, B, and C, satisfy the equation A to the nth plus b to the nth equals c to the nth for any integer value of n that's greater than 2. It is among the most notable theorems in the history of mathematics, and prior to its proof, it was in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most difficult mathematical problem, in part because the theorem has the largest number of unsuccessful proofs. So the most, this problem had the most people try to solve it and spend the most time on it and the most way that you're like, nope, it's not this number. Nope, it's not this number. (laughs) But after 358 years of ethic of effort by mathematicians, the first successful proof was released in 1994 by wow. Andrew Wiles, and it was formally published in 1995. Amazing. So Fermat is best known for his last theorem in number mm-hmm. theory. Also, Fermat's principle for light propagation. I, mean, I don't know that one, but, whatever. you know, Fermat's last theorem. Boom, boom, boom. Great. Should know that. All right. Question eight. The famous Monty Hall problem is a scenario in which you are on a game show with the option of choosing one of three doors in order to win a car and given the chance to change your first choice, should you? From what long-running game show does this problem derive? Is this let's make a deal? You are correct. Yeah. Yes. So here's the puzzle. You're given the choice of three doors. Behind one door is a car. Behind the other two doors are goats. Mm -hmm. Um, You pick a door, say number one, and the host who knows what's behind the doors opens another door, say door number three, which has a goat behind it. He then says to you, do you want to change your pick to door number two? So is it to your advantage to switch your choice? Um, So the problem is a paradox of the vertical type because the correct choice that one should switch doors is so counterintuitive that it might seem absurd, but it is actually true. Huh. So you should always pick again Mm -hmm. if given the choice yes all right great yep question nine this might prove why family guy is still making new episodes a certain mathematical theorem states that a certain living thing hitting keys at random on a typewriter keyboard for an infinite amount of time will almost surely type any given text such as the complete works of william shakespeare what organism fills in this definition giving the theorem its name Uh, Those are monkeys. (laughs) Yes. This is called the infinite monkey theorem. Um, So in this context, almost surely is a mathematical term with a precise meaning. And the monkey is not an actual monkey, but Mm -hmm. a metaphor for an abstract device that produces an endless random sequence of letters and symbols. 
uh, when I was at Binghamton University, go Bearcats, uh, we used to hang out at this local vegetarian bar because I'm a cool person and they would have live music every Thursday and Friday night. And the, like the house, like the, yeah, the house band was called Monkey's Typing. How about that? Yeah. Uh, they traveled then, all over the southern tier. And then the other college's theater department came snapping over, and then we would have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have to take our vegetarian shawarma and get out of there. <laughs> You're on their turf now. Yep, it's all over. All right. <laughs> Finally, question 10. Name the 2014 song title from these lyrics. Now we've got problems, and I don't think we can solve them. You made a really deep cut. Uh, Julia, come on. This is Taylor Swift's bad blood. <laughs> you are correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hey. Uh, hey. I know. I didn't have some one. problems with Taylor Swift lyrics before. I know. It's because I was so intent that that was, I just had the wrong title in my head. I got this one, though. Yeah. Great job. Thank you. See? Great. Great. That was a quiz on mathematical or philosophical problems or theorems. And I think I got more than five correct. You sure did. Oh, great. Excellent job. I'm clearly learning something finally from this podcast that we do. <laughs> Instead of just letting it flow over me. Um, uh, so yeah, this is a quick one, but you know what? Thanks so much for listening, our friends. Uh, thank you for uh, sticking with us all summer while uh, Julia was hanging out with her new bib trapped under a baby trapped under a baby most of the time she's very cute you guys have already seen the photos uh we have posted them on our twitter and facebook if you wanted to go check that out she's very adorable also do you have anything to plug lauren i do have something to plug i uh, have a book coming out in the spring i have co-authored a book called 500 patterns with my friend jeff and todd and um, it's based on like uh, fabric prints and patterns from two collections, the uh, Syracuse University Sue Ann Jeanette Costume Collection and the uh, Rochester Museum and Science Center Costume Collection. It's um, beautiful prints from uh, as far back as 1830 to the present. And they're divided up into like floral, abstract, geometric, figural, all sorts of fun things. Um, and it's being uh, published through Lawrence King Publishers in London. And it's coming out on March 23rd of next year. So head on over to Amazon and pre-order your copy. Um, you will not recognize me in any of the text because it's <laughs> it's a reference text, um, but it's very beautiful. It's supposed to be re- a reference text for both uh, fashion designers and artists, tattoo artists, that kind of thing. And um, it's just really, it's a beautiful little coffee table book type thing with some nice information about the history of prints. And pattern. And this will be not be the last time you hear about this. Oh, folks. no. So I, don't worry if you didn't, you know. Yeah. I'm going to catch be, all that. I'm going to be plugging this at least through Christmas. <laughs> so make sure you buy all your friends and family. Pre-order. 500 patterns. <laughs> Is that the title? Yeah. 500 patterns. I won't forget. Although oh. I might need to look it up again by the time we record again. But uh, it's exciting so, yeah. stuff. It's very exciting. I'm an author. Authoress. Um, which is probably against what we were talking about with the feminist text thing. I'm an author. Yeah. Um, whenever we watch Jeopardy, sidebar, whenever mm-hmm. we watch Jeopardy and they do a um, uh, category title and it's like women authors and I go, it should just be called authors. <laughs> and when we were at the Jeopardy studio for like Josh's like tapings, oh, no. I was sitting there and like like women singers came up and I was like, it should just be called singers like in the audience. And I was like, Oh, shoot. I I'm, not my, I'm not in my living room. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Someone's going to hear me. But it's true. It should just be called yeah. singers. Um, yes, I am just an author. So um, aside from that, thanks for, so much for listening, you guys. <laughs> we'll, we'll catch you. We'll catch you next we'll time. We'll catch you next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye.